Hello, my dears. Before I begin today's conversation, I wanted to let you know about a new book that's coming out, and it's from my lovely friend and former podcast guest, Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen wrote a gorgeous book about savoring the life that's right in front of us. It's called Life in Five Senses, How Exploring the Senses Got Me Out of My Head and Into the World. And oh my gosh, yes, don't we just all need that reminder? Gretchen is, uh, she's like such an explorer. She wanted to look at the mysteries and joys of the five senses as a way to experience more happiness. It always makes me think of that line from Thoreau, I want to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. It's everything from the simple pleasures of experiencing the magic of ketchup, which I think we all know that I love. I, d- I don't know why I say that like uh, like I'm the first person who's loved ketchup, but truly, it was just so great. I- it was also in our podcast episode where she's explaining to me how ketchup has all the magical things like umami. So she looks at, I don't know, the beauty of food to curating a playlist to going to an art museum every day. Gretchen shows us how to live awake to each day with depth and delight and connection. So I think you're really going to love it. It's called Life in the Five Senses. And it's available now, wherever books are sold. You know that feeling where we imagine our lives along a simple trajectory that we can follow? It's kind of like in the game of life. We're like, this is the part where you graduate college. This is the part where you get married. This is the part where you choose your career and buy your split-level home. This is the part when you have two healthy, successful children. This is the part where you retire at the millionaire estates. Ding, ding, ding. You've won the game of life. But more often than not, our lives don't follow a trajectory. So how do we make sense of lives that veer from our expectations, from our plans? What might happen next? And and then who do we become? Can that be beautiful still? Today I'm talking to a careful observer of the human condition, and her name is Maggie Smith. Maggie is a poet and the author of award-winning books of poetry like Goldenrod and Keep Moving. You've probably heard her viral poem, Good Bones, which has inspired basically everyone with a pulse. Maggie's life was on a certain trajectory. She had a loving husband that she'd been with since college. Two funny kids, they're living in the city of her childhood, like right near the family. Dance parties after dinner sort of happiness. That is, until she discovered her husband may have been unfaithful. Her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, chronicles the aftermath of a painful, unexpected divorce and the end of a life that she thought that they would have together. Maggie, I have been looking forward to this like a little homecoming. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. It just makes my heart feel so full. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I have to say, that's sort of how I've been framing this book <laughs> to myself. Really? That's sort of been like a key word in my mind is homecoming. So I, I love that. Fun. I guess maybe then we could start with the part where we feel exiled from the story of our choosing we want to believe that we have all kinds of like life is a series of choices control and then most of what happens in our lives happens to us 
So your story, like a lot of lovely people in this community, is one with a very crisp dividing line of before and after. I wondered if we could maybe start with what your life was like in the before times. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think the before times felt very secure to me and sort of planned out. And as a um, type A firstborn daughter (laughs) with a very sort of stolid Midwestern upbringing, I was like, oh, this is what you do, right? You do this and then you do this and then you do this. And okay, no, all those balls are in the air. I'm sure I can add another one into the mix and then another one. And oh, look, they're still they're still in the air. So I must be, you know, quote, doing it right. And so my life, you know, in the before times was I was a writer. I was a wife. Eventually, I was the mother and the mother of two children, a daughter and a son. So, you know, my life is a lot of caregiving and then less writing than caregiving, I would say. You know, I probably parent more hours out of the day than I than I do creative work. But parenting is creative, too, I suppose. So that that was really the before and and then the after it's it's strange when I think about it because most of those things are still the same and it's actually really useful to to think about that like it, it's I think it's easy when life takes a big turn to be like wow I don't even recognize my life anymore mm-hmm. I thought it was one thing and now it's something else but if I really move through the list of things I just gave you about my before life, the only thing missing is the spouse. Um, I'm still doing the same work. I'm still parenting the same kids. I'm still living in the same house. So there's there's actually a lot of continuity for as bewildering as that shift was. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that the total disorientation is... Is it the undoing of the story? Like, you're like, I had the thing that I told people at parties. I'm Maggie. This is my husband. This is my, this is my life. Yeah. I mean, we met in college and we were in our early 20s and then we built this life and we'll, you know, be together when we're old, just like I expect my parents to be. Although I suppose in some ways they are because they're in their 70s now, but to me, they're still like 45, which is weird because I'm 45. So <laughs> how are my parents my age? No one tell me. That's I don't right. want to do the math. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to me, it was a beautiful story. You know, you meet someone, you both love books and writing and film and music, and you build a life that is sort of an artistic life, but also a domestic life. And to me, that's that's what the story was. Mm-hmm. And so... The story after that was like, but then, yeah. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. It wasn't quite what I thought. And how do we, you know, how do we sort of recover from that really without having all of the answers to why the thing didn't work? And so in some ways now, things feel more authentic to me in my daily life. I don't feel like I'm auditioning for something anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Every day. When's that when's that role gonna happen? Yes. Right. When yeah, will they just, call? Yeah, when will they call? They're not gonna call. This is just it. Yeah. And and yet it is, you know, the the sort of cognitive dissonance of it all is still something that I struggle with a lot. I don't know how to 
ask this question because I feel like we could do the gross version and then the poetic version of it. Because <laughs> uh, the gross version is like, Maggie, what happened? And you write so beautifully about like, what do people mean when they ask that? Like, what terrible, awful diagnostic thing do they want to know? Yeah. One guess is, too, when people ask me what happened, you know, I, I one version of that is... They want to know if whatever happened to me is going to happen to them. Yes. I think it's avoidance. I think it, there's something about like, oh, can I not do whatever you did? <laughs> yes. Tell me now. Yeah. Like, Just okay. lay it out. Lay it out for me. And then reverse engineer it. So wherever <laughs> you made that happen to you. It's a reverse prescription. Right. I cannot yeah. have that happen to me. And I, yes. I do think it's it's a, a need for yeah comfort and control and solace that like, these bad things that happen to somebody else won't happen to me because, oh, look, I know the details now and they're not like my details or that doesn't look like my life. Yes. And, and I, th- I think there's something to that. But I mean, I also think the bottom line is anything can happen to any of us at any time, which no one wants to hear. So I'm sorry I just had to say that out loud. <laughs> Doesn't it feel so I always feel when I say something <laughs> like that. Which I just love you for is that I'm wearing like an enormous placard that reads like the end is near. And just you're like Mm -hmm. you bring people right up to the edge of like, wow, this no one's driving this boat necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And that's unnerving. And so I think some of our some of our craving for detail is we want to be able to sort of like process something and set it aside and not have to live with it. You know, precarity is tough. Like when we have to live with it with ourselves and with other people. And so, I mean, the sort of short answer to what happened is I don't really know. Yeah. (laughs) And the the sort of longer answer is lots of different things happened. (sighs) I, I, I mean, I don't actually ever sort of figure out what the magic recipe of what we could have endured in our marriage was. I just know we went over the threshold of that. Yes, threshold is such a nice word. Yeah. There's a such a, a desire to rewind the tape and just kind of know exactly which detail. Like, I saw the sign for this. I went to count. I could have gone to counseling. I guess it's the it's the tape of could haves in the mixtape called could haves. Yeah. Uh, or for health stuff, I could have made that doctor's appointment. I could have believed myself in this certain way. Or I could have checked in on that friend. And then we're never given the luxury of that delicious, uh, omniscient feeling that we want so much. Yeah, the could-haves are hard. You quote this uh, lovely uh, bit by uh, Zora Neale Hurston that says, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. And I, I thought that was such a beautiful encapsulation of like, the desire you have, we have, to make the coherent story, to find, to like, to be able to tell it backwards and forwards, mm. and then, and then like, and then trying very hard to like, let go of having that omniscient feeling. Yeah. I mean, and in some ways there are years that question and then years that question harder. <laughs> Right. Um, Or years that answer in sort of oblique ways. And I really um, I find myself craving answers to to 
all these questions and and some of them I can't have. And I think that's something that that we need to to live with and when I'm writing a poem what I do is really think about the container and sort of like what's the experience I'm trying to enact or embody in this poem and what is the shape that is going to do the best job at enacting or embodying that feeling. And sometimes it's couplets because I love a lot of white space to kind of spread something out, you know, let the reader take their time. Sometimes it's like a prose poem that's like this really imposing blocky chunk of text because I want you to just get in there and have no relief and not be able to get out, like just get in there and have the experience. And in writing this book, I realized that really what the last few years has felt like to me was pretty fragmented. I mean, pieciness and fragmentation and repetition and sort of looping and lyricism in this book. And that for me, was like the best way I could sort of access the answers was via form. And that's the poet in me. Yeah, oh, lovely. You have this gorgeous image, too, of our lives like nesting dolls, mm. like those little matroshkas. I thought it was such a beautiful way for people who may have a lot of chapters in their life and they're not really sure that actually the chapters make a story. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways it's about it's like an, a sort of foil idea or like a pushing back against the idea of progress or evolution is the idea that like inside 45-year-old me is 43-year-old me and 13-year-old me and 7-year-old me and all of these previous sort of versions or iterations of myself are all contained inside me. Another way of thinking about it is like saving over something. You know, like when you write a new version of something and you save over it and replace it, I don't do that. When I'm writing, I say version two, version three, version four, because I always want to be able to go back and see what was going on in that initial draft. And so I don't think of us as being saved over. I think of us as being saved alongside. That's nice. And so the, the sort of nesting doll metaphor is really about sort of carrying all of ourselves, all of those memories, all of those experiences. Um, along with us and then and then relationships too I think are are sort of nested and inside the current relationship are all of the previous iterations of that of that you know relationship whether it's with your spouse or your kids or your parents you know all of these things kind of evolve and change but you still keep all of those versions as you age oh, I like that that's a nice addition to to like the before and after framework because mm. sometimes it can feel really i mean in my own terrible experience <laughs> it kind of that fault line sort of also really created a desire to go back to that seamless feeling i had before when i was sort of dumb and confident and hadn't hit every branch on the way down and so i kind of like the nesting doll feeling which like but inside, the, in that version was the one who didn't have a great time in college. And the one before that was who made some lovely high school friends and learned a lot about love through friendship. And 
like just and then and then and then it's kind of a lovely feeling yeah and they all get to come along i mean i think that's part of the thing for me is uh, before and after makes me nervous first of all I almost always mm-hmm. prefer the before picture in any comparison. <laughs> like anytime somebody like do- redoes their living room or gets a haircut, I'm always toggling back and forth. And I'm I'm not quite clear on which one is before and after because I usually prefer whatever was going on in the before photo, which is I'm sure says something about me. That's got to be like a Myers-Briggs Enneagram thing. Um, but I mean, after that makes me nervous. Like it's it. I, I think there's like a a sort of like false neatness mm. to that idea of like before it was like this and now um you know before i was a caterpillar and now i'm a butterfly it's like well maybe i was a butterfly before i'm just a different kind of butterfly or maybe i'm still in a pupa but the pupa's a little different i mean it i just the the neatness of of like what we expect from not just others but ourselves as far as like you know capital T transformation through these big life changes. It just like puts so much pressure on us to like learn the big lesson and, and be better. Yeah, you're you're very anti-progress in a way that makes me want to hold you in my arms. <laughs> uh, because I you just have to, you you say so many wonderful things about that. Like, you know, if people keep wanting to hand you lemons and order to make lemonade and you're adding immediately they're like oh but you added a lot of vodka and you were like oh but the lemonade wasn't worth the lemon yes i thought that was such a devastatingly punchy thing to say that is like and i think after coming off of keep moving and that was something someone said to me when i published keep moving which was wow you sure made lemonades from those lemons and and added vodka to it and i and i laughed i thought it was really funny i still think it's funny because i I get the impulse behind that statement is first congratulatory and and sort of prideful and like, look, you did it, right? Like you took something terrible and made something beautiful from it. And I I appreciate that. But at the same time, it wasn't worth it. Yes. <laughs> I'd rather have a smooth life and no book. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And the implication that writers are just like looking for horrible, horrible events yeah. in order to quote metabolize no don't don't need don't need a tote bag of trauma to pull things out of to write books like i would have written a book that year i would have written a book last year it just would have been a different book you know there's material everywhere i don't need it to happen to me all the lemons and lemonades kind of metaphors break down so uh intensely in describing mothering and your worries about your kids and Oh, yeah. I really appreciate the honesty with which people want to say things like, you know, didn't it just make them more resilient? And you have you have a strong answer to that. Yeah. And for what? I mean, I would rather have kids who are less resilient and feel more secure. Right. I mean, I again, I didn't want the lemons and I didn't want the lemonade. (laughs) So, yeah. And, And again, like talking about sort of material like well you have this material and you were able to do so much with it well okay so i wrote books but what are my kids doing with it they're living with it and maybe someday they'll write books i don't know maybe they'll maybe they'll compose music from it maybe they'll become distance runners 
fueled by it. Maybe, you know, maybe they'll just be very kind, compassionate, do no harm humans because of it. Um, but yeah, it's not a gift. Like, no, this kind of trouble is not a gift. Yeah, it's like the implication is that like all pain becomes a song. It doesn't. If we're very lucky, we hear some of the notes. But for the most part, it just like it rings through us like without melody. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a little it's a little tricky. I mean, th- I think there I can find gifts anywhere if I look and I do. I look I look hard, you know, if they're not obvious. But um, yeah. But there's just there's a lot else out there. And and frankly, I'm really looking forward to like the next book not being about trouble. You had this really touching story about when you had your first Christmas without your kids for the first time in your house, and you thought you were going to have a certain kind of day. Sometimes, like, the loneliness, I imagine, of divorce feels very permanent. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I went for a run one Christmas. My kids were not in my house. I had to wait a few hours to get them back to me. Um, And, you know, there was a knock at my door and someone was standing there with cake and said, I just saw you run by my house. And I remember that this is your first Christmas without your kids on Christmas morning. And I remember having that experience the first Christmas after my divorce. So here is some cake. And then we're both in tears as I'm sweating and running clothes and she's handing me cake. And then as I'm standing at my kitchen counter eating cake with my hands, like a raccoon <laughs> in the alley, still in my running clothes, my there's a knock at my door again and it's another neighbor bringing me treats. Like, I know this is a hard year I thought you might use. And I just thought, you know what? I'm not, I'm not alone. And I will say that I've, you know, yeah. as much as, as much as the book has been about me realizing um, I'm still me and I've sort of like, you know, I predated my marriage, which is important to remember, and I have outlasted it. It's also, I think, been a real sort of like study in community and how much I have leaned on the sort of grace of other people, friends who showed up with food people who took me to happy hour, friends who were like, let's start roller skating because it's a pandemic and we can't go anywhere. Whenever you're feeling like, oh, I have made a mess of my life or my life is a mess. And then someone offers you kindness. It makes you feel worthy in a way that you might not have been feeling, you know, five minutes prior. Yeah. Yeah. You had a friend, too, who got really into birding, and I thought the logic was so lovely. Well, can you tell me about that? Yeah, we we were co-workers for a long time, and now um, she actually edits a, a birding magazine. And she loves birding, and we were talking one day, and she was like, oh, it's actually the best thing, because you can't think about anything else when you're birding. It's so engrossing. You are just 
in it, you're looking, you're researching, you're listening, all your senses are engaged, you are not thinking about any bad emails, snarky texts, things that like plague you when you lie in bed at night and wish you could sleep. And and I love that. I love that idea. I think for me, um, running was was like that for me. Like just being in my body instead of in my brain was really useful. As someone who sort of treated my my body like a plant stand for my head for many, many years, like it is the thing that tra that like gets the head around and moves it places. <laughs> yes, but yes. I've really ignored everything from the neck down for most of my life. And and then I was like, oh wait, we store stress in our bodies, so I can't actually think my way beyond this feeling. I actually have to, you know, my therapist, my not the intuitive therapist, the other therapist, because I like to have a few. Uh, my 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 traditional therapist is like you thinking isn't going to do it you know you really need to get the stress out of your body and and she said have you ever tried screaming into a pillow and i started laughing because i was like who does that but yes she was like throwing something you know screaming into a pillow going for a run dancing jumping on a trampoline like release the stress from your body genius sometimes i do it with like transitions where i'm like Hot shower, cold shower, walking outside. Like, I just try to use temperature to be like, I got to. It's like a hard reset, right? It's a hard yes. reset. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's like, we're just going to get back to the factory settings on this one and see if we turn it <laughs> on. You know, most things, if they're not working correctly, if you turn them on and off, they miraculously work again. And maybe with the body, it's somewhat <laughs> like that. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I'm just thinking about your beautiful poem, Good Bones, and what a terrible deal it always feels like we're giving our kids mm. when we want to introduce them to the beauty and the terror of the world. And actually, Maggie, do you mind reading it for no. people who haven't? Would that be all right? Of course. I will just lightly preface it then. It is uh, for people who haven't read it. Uh, this gorgeous poem went viral and I mean, I mean, Meryl Streep reading it out loud, viral uh, episodes, um, uh, Madame Secretary framed around it kind of viral. And it is absolutely stunning. And also the heart of your heart about what you what you want about the tragic comedy of this life. So, no, I'd, I'd love to hear it. It is tragic comedy, isn't it? <laughs> this is good bones. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you. Though I keep this from my children, I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. I love the thought that we're simultaneously selling them and protecting them and loving them and fearing for them at the same time. And that's somehow the strange beating heart of motherhood. 
Yeah. How do you protect with honesty? You know, how do you, how do you tell without fear? I mean, that's this balance. That's, I, I don't know if I'm ever doing it right. I mean, every day I'm like, should I have said less? Should I have said more? Should I be telling them more about this thing that's going on in our town, in this state, in this country, in the world? Should I be telling them more or less? Should I have said it differently? Should I have framed it in a different way? I mean, it's, it's so tricky. And when I wrote the poem, they were so young that I had the luxury of keeping things from my children. And now I no longer have that luxury. You know, Violet has a phone and when she turns it on in the morning, she gets that little Apple news ding that tells her things that I haven't even gotten to break to her yet. Like I don't get to be the breaker of news anymore. That is a shift in parenting when they don't need you as the sort of mediator between themselves and the world anymore. And so then all I can do is sort of be a soft place to land and a place to sort of like listen and console and, you know, puzzle things through and commiserate and sometimes also just be mad together, you know? Yeah. Yes. You have this beautiful image about like the birds in the trees. You said comma, Maggie, comma. <laughs> the thing about birds. If we knew nothing of jays or wrens or sparrows, we believe the trees were singing as if each tree had its own song. The thing about this life, if we knew nothing of what was missing, what has been removed, it would look full and beautiful. I don't think people always know what's missing from the outside. Yeah, and I think it's also a, a lesson in like, you know, I know what's missing, but also I have a really full life. You know, I know that there are things about my life that are really different than they were four or five years ago. And technically those are absences, right? Like those aren't gains, those are absences. But my goodness, if you had told me 30 years ago that I would be parenting these two miraculous people who I love so much and living in my hometown and having Sunday dinner with my parents and my sisters and my brothers-in-law and my nieces and nephews every Sunday and writing and getting to keep, you know, making books and teaching. And then you also said, but also this bad thing will happen and it's not going to last forever. I probably would have focused on the bad thing because that would have been me 30 years ago. But all of this stuff still is here. Like the trees are still singing. The trees are still singing. Yeah. 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 And your thing at the end, when you like look at your kids, you're like, but you make this, but you, but you make this place beautiful. Yeah. And I wouldn't have them otherwise. So the lot of like, yes, but, and yes, and thinking that has to happen around this, but I wouldn't trade them for anything, period. And for a while, I was in so much pain that I, I really did think I would undo everything. I would eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I would like to hit reset. I would like to do a hard reset and just get to do my entire life over. I really would. And that was, that was just pain talking. And after sitting with it long enough, I was like, no, no, I take that back. 
I'll take the pain because I get this with it. I'll, I can do it. Maggie, what a gorgeous, courageous, lovely person you are. I thank you so much for getting in the weeds of the, um, of the intensity of precarity. I just, I really think you're so lovely. And thank you so much for this conversation. Oh my goodness. Thank you. How do we begin living in the aftermath of our lives? When the stories we've clung to about who we are and who we've been and who we're becoming come unraveled. Maggie describes that before and after not as a clean line because so much of who she was before, she still is today. A mom, a friend, a daughter, a writer, ding, 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 like all still true. Maybe your aftermath began in the wake of a divorce or after a family secret that came to light or once you got a diagnosis or after a funeral. Perhaps you didn't have that baby the person you hoped for never arrived. And then, tick, 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 that feeling of being unspooled, life came undone. And yet, we could make this place beautiful. That kind of hope-making is what we do here together, telling the full truth and hoping still that, yes, we could make this place beautiful. So, If you need that feeling of your heart stretching and making room for new hopeful things, here's a little blessing from our new book of blessings. That book's called The Lives We Actually Have, so you kind of get the gist of where that's going. So here it is. A blessing for you. God, my life is too many things. Awful, lovely, full, and shockingly incomplete. Will you help me learn to live with a greater capacity for this? Living in the tension between a life that has worked out and the one that has gone to hell in every handbasket. Let today be a divine exercise of yes and. Yes, I have so much to be thankful for. And this hasn't turned out like I thought it would. Yes, I feel moments of joy And I have lost more than I could live without. Yes, I want to make the most of today, and my body keeps breaking. Yes, I am trying to be hopeful, and this is daunting. Yes, I am trying to be brave, and I feel so afraid. So, bless me, trying to live in between those two words, yes, and... May I understand that this is where the real work of life is found, where it takes courage to live, where grief can strip us to the studs and love can remake us once again, where our hearts can be both broken and keep on beating, never sorry to have been broken at all. Yes, and make me capable of great joy, great love, great risk, even fear, as you expand my heart with this yes and today. Bless you, my loves. May this be a heart-expanding week for you. See you soon. Hi, Kate. I'm calling to share about how people best supported me through my divorce. My daughter was really, really young when I got divorced, 
the people who physically showed up and sat with me and remembered the person that they know, the Madison that they knew, who was a friend, a daughter, a peer, you know, instead of just this person going through a divorce. But especially when that physical presence meant that they remembered me on holidays, which ended up starting to feel really lonely. You know, when you don't have your daughter all day on Christmas or you celebrate Mother's Day and no one remembers to tell you Happy Mother's Day because your child's too young to talk. When your friends and your family speak into those moments and help you feel seen, and, you know, even if it's helping your child draw a card at preschool, those really mean a lot when the normal place that those holidays would involve other people doesn't exist anymore. Hi, Kate. My name is Deb Snyder. So I would say for anybody that's going through a divorce or knows somebody that's going through a divorce, to just be there for them, listen to them, and just... Be a support for them because that's what they really need. Hi, my name's Barb. I'm from Ontario. I was in a 40-year marriage, which ended. Um, My husband had an affair, and uh, he was quite happy to continue with the other relationship and our relationship, uh, which I wasn't. So I ended the marriage, and I'm going to get emotional. Um, One of the nice things a friend did was invite me on their family holiday to Aruba and to just go and sit and heal by the beach and the ocean with people who loved me and cared for me was probably the nicest thing anyone's ever done. Hi, Kate. This is Erin from Colorado. I moved into a new home for myself and my son and was devastated at leaving the house that I had raised my children and had planned a future that was never going to be. And my people showed up. They started ripping open boxes and unpacked my stuff. My kitchen is still a little oddly arranged five years later, and I leave it that way on purpose to remember that support and love they showed. Love is a verb. Thanks. This episode of the Everything Happens podcast was made possible because of our generous partners, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And of course, nothing is possible without the wisdom and expertise of my absolutely fabulous team. Jessica Ritchie, my heart I love you. Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Hope Anderson, Jeb Burt, and Catherine Smith. This really is my very favorite kind of group project. So if you wanna know what else we're up to, head over to katebowler.com slash newsletter so you don't miss a thing. I would really love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? It means a ton to us when we hear what you liked or who you want to hear in conversation next. Also, we really love hearing your voice. Feel free to leave us a voicemail. We might even use it on the air. So call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.